This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business XM's, excuse me, Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm your host this week, Rob Conivier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and I'm coming to you live from Seattle today. I'm thrilled to welcome our next guest, Pam Cohen. She is the Vice President for Global Operations and Strategy for Hyundai's Urban Air Mobility Business Unit, also known as Flying Cars. Pam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rob. So... What are you working on at Hyundai right now? Um, well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think flying cars is about as close as we, we kind of get to it. Um, essentially, urban air mobility is just uh, going into the air domain for personal mobility needs. Um, so it doesn't quite look like a car, but it's going to function a little bit more like a car than it does like a plane for the everyday user of it. And how big are you talking about? Um, So we're thinking about aircraft that seat about four to nine people, depending on the type of configuration that you're looking at. Um, And in general, we'll probably be going about 40 to 100 kilometers in terms of range for most trips. So maybe just set the scene for people that haven't seen the video that you showed at CES. What does the plane look like? How do you get into it? How do you actually interact with it as a passenger? Yeah, so the passenger experience, I like to kind of contextualize this a little bit more broadly in terms of the, the mobility journey that a passenger would take. Um, because obviously the air part of your, your journey every day is just going to be one part of what mobility looks like in the future of cities. Um, so to us, at least at, at Hyundai, um, the urban air mobility experience is going to be something as part of an integrated mobility um, solution. So when you get up in the morning and you think about how you're going to get to work or you think about how you're going to go shop for groceries, you'll open up an integrated mobility app that will help you understand different routes and different ways to get to work. Um, One of those ways, or at least one leg of some of those ways, is actually going to be through the air. Um, So if you select the um, actual um, route that day that includes an urban air mobility component, um, you will show up at a vertiport where you are supposed to actually meet your aircraft. Um, you will go through a streamlined security process, um, and then you'll actually board from a, a landing pad that looks like a little bit more of an advanced version of a helipad today. Um, get on into your uh, your vehicle, and it will whisk you away above the crowds um, and take you to your, your landing site. Um, and then kind of depending on where you are compared to that landing site and, and what city you're in, either you'll go about your day at your final destination or potentially take another mode of transportation for the last quarter mile or, or mile of your trip. So when I'm flying in something like this, how much do I need to worry about the weather? So weather is a really big component here, um, and it's one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking through when we think through the way that we actually design our aircraft, but also our airspace system. Um, so weather is a really big thing that's going to determine when we fly, where we fly, and also just how we design our vehicles to be able to interact with different types of weather systems. Um, weather is going to be a big deal, but it's never actually going to cause a security concern for the actual passenger. We wouldn't fly and our regulators wouldn't allow us to fly in any situation that would be deemed unsafe um, based on the weather or any other factor. So when should, when should passengers expect something like this to be available? Um, That's a great question. It kind of depends on which company you're going to ask about that. So at Hyundai, what we believe is that we're going to try to get into the market around 2028. 
Um, a lot of other folks you'll see have announced that they're going to try to get into the market, at least with pilot programs, a little bit earlier. And I think it's very likely that you're going to see the initial operations of this happen a little bit sooner than that. But in terms of when the everyday person is going to be able to have an urban air mobility component to their journey, um, I would expect it's going to be sometime around that 2028 to 2030 mark when this is going to become a reality for, for everyday folks. Well, it's interesting when you think about a lot of technologies, you can see demos and you can see a few early prototypes from other companies where they have these flying vehicles right now. But a lot like Amazon, you look at where Amazon is today versus where it was 10, 20 years ago. These technologies actually take a while to develop. Yes, absolutely. And especially when you think through what the, the end state of some of these technologies are going to look like, um, the development cycles are really long. Um, and these things, although a lot of folks like to call them flying cars because it's, it's reminiscent of the, the Jetsons future, I think we were all promised for, for many decades now, um, they are aircraft at their heart. And there's a very long development process that's entailed in creating those, those aircraft, not just in terms of making sure the technology gets developed to where it needs to be, but also in terms of our regulatory structure to ensure that the testing and verification and certification is in place and has been verified to make sure that it's safe for folks to use. So that's what leads to some of these longer timelines is really making sure that at a system-wide level, the technology not only has developed appropriately, but that we're also certain that it's going to be safe for people to get into. So how does a company like Hyundai that is building ground transportation decide to get into a market like this and how do they actually make that decision and how do they find the initial people to build that business? Yes, yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think a lot of it really comes down to kind of the, the ethos of, of what Hyundai has been trying to do as a company for, for many decades now, um, which is really to try to be very customer focused and think about what the customer needs truly and design backward from that. Um, and so essentially the underlying thrust behind this is that the, the future and the, the face of cities and the face of mobility is changing. Um, and I know that that's a, that's a hot topic that we talk about in many different ways from e-scooters to electric bikes to autonomous ground vehicles. And, and air is part of that as well. Um, and the driving force kind of behind this is really trying to reimagine what is the future of mobility? What is the future of transportation? Um, and how can companies have a more integrated offering to be able to actually meet these needs? Um, and from that basis, the, the new kind of strategy that you see Hyundai rolling out slowly over the last couple of years has been born, which is to try to innovate from not just simply an amazing and safe car manufacturer that, that leads the market in terms of safety as well as terms of design, but to think more broadly about the concept of mobility. And part of that concept is taking our two-dimensional system and making it three-dimensional by trying to utilize the airspace in our cities. So how did they connect with you? Had they already been consulting with you a bit and saying, hey, we're thinking about getting into this area? Or was there another way that you connected with their effort? Yeah, so they've been working on this in the background for a couple of years now. Um, my, my personal interactions with, with Hyundai actually came from our executive vice president's um, so the person who leads our business unit is a man named Jaywon Shin. Um, and I've actually known Jaywon for a very long time. He used to be the uh, associate administrator of aeronautics at NASA, um, which is a client that I'd worked with um, when I was a consultant for many years. Uh, and then when Jaywon went over to um, Hyundai, he brought me in as a consultant again uh, and eventually decided that he, he needed us uh, full time all the time uh, from the Ascension Global crew. Oh, it sounds like so he was working with you. And then at some point you got an email or a phone call that said, hey, have you thought about working on this a little more? 
Exactly. Yeah. So it was a, more more like a couple dinners uh, that we that we discussed it over, but but pretty much that. Yes. And then and then what pushed you over the the edge to do this to go from a more entrepreneurial lifestyle into working for a larger company. So that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I have spent most of my career in aerospace and defense, um, and specifically as a consultant in aerospace and defense, and always got a lot of energy from being able to help my clients succeed. Um, I think really the, the big thing that kind of pushed me over were, were kind of two big factors. Um, one factor was really being able to put guidance into action. Um, so being an advisor is, is a really fulfilling role. It's something that I've loved doing for, for many years now. Um, but really being able to take that thinking, take that strategy, take everything that we've learned as a company across the ecosystem and say, okay, let's make this real. And it's now our responsibility to do so um, was something that was really exciting to try to actually take all of our thinking and make it a reality. Um, the second really big thing for me is that um, I was really convinced by the way that Hyundai was looking at the market. Um, so there are many different ways people are thinking about this market and thinking about their positioning. But I personally was really impressed with the really broad scope that the company wanted to take, um, but also the less company-centric and more community-centric approach, um, where they're thinking about this as kind of a much broader idea of mobility and how can they help advance the livability of our cities and the livability of our communities. Um, so that kind of overriding value system really resonated with what I was always excited about. And combining that with the, the chance to actually take that guidance and, and take it to the skies, so to speak, um, was something that I just couldn't pass up. Yeah, no, it sounds very exciting. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 132. I'm on the air right now with Pam Cohen. She's the Vice President for Global Operations and Strategy for Hyundai's Urban Air Mobility Business Unit, the flying car business. So... When you take a look at bringing something like this to market, Hyundai has traditionally been a product company, build cars, build vehicles, and then sell them to consumers. And here you're talking about something that's more like a service. And I think at CES, you announced a collaboration with Uber Elevate. Maybe talk a bit about why you decided to work with Uber here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Uber is a really important partner for us as we think through our overall approach to the ecosystem and to, and to urban air mobility. And kind of to understand the Uber collaboration, I think it's important to kind of take a step back and, and think about the urban air mobility market. Um, because this market is still in its infancy, and it's still something that needs to be opened up, so to speak. Um, compared to traditional markets where you either already have a product that you're just improving or, you know, you're replacing an existing product, this truly is a new mode and a new type of market that needs to be opened up. Um, and the interesting part about that is that no matter how um, strong you are as a company, no matter how smart your people are, no matter how much money you have backing you, um, this market isn't going to open up because one company is able to go do that. It, it's really going to take a village in order to do so. And it's why partnerships are actually at the heart of a lot of our strategy that you're going to be seeing coming out over the next year or so. So the way that we are viewing this is that we have an obligation um, to not only just make vehicles that are going to go into fleets that will service urban air mobility markets, um, but we also have an obligation to help actually create the market, to work with policymakers, work with other folks, work with local communities 
to understand what are the requirements? How do we best regulate this kind of space? And how do we create a good ecosystem value chain that allows us to deliver to communities what they really need from the system? Well, one of the things I'm sure you've thought about with your background in aerospace, space industry, working as a consultant is there's been a form of transportation that meets a lot of these needs for years called called helicopters. And what's different this time with these new vehicles? Do they have new capabilities? Are they packaged differently? What's happening that's changing the market? Yeah, so there's a couple of big things that are changing. Um, so one is that the market itself is changing. Increasing urbanization is creating a greater need for new types of transportation modes. And air is at one domain that's really under leveraged. But in terms of technology itself, there's kind of two driving factors. So one is electrification and one is automation. So obviously, a lot of other sectors have been leading the way and getting a lot of technology development on these two areas. And when they converge in the aerial domain, they create a lot quieter systems. So one of the one of the things that you notice with helicopters is that um, they're usually banned in most areas because they're really, really loud. Yeah, thump, 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 thump. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don't go. All you have to do is go talk to a couple um, community groups inside of New York City, and you'll get a very good uh, view of how we view helicopter traffic in a lot of different areas around the country. Yeah, I know in um, Seattle, like when you hear the helicopters flying around, it's pretty much just the police helicopters, and you can see them over in a part of town, and you wonder what's going on. Exactly. And so the good news about the way that these EV tolls are being designed is that um, with the electric propulsion systems, but also the way that we're actually designing the propulsion systems themselves, they're going to have be a lot more quiet experience to be able to actually be inside of these communities. And when you add automation into the, the equation as well, it actually creates a much more feasible economic case. So bringing together the automation in terms of the economic case, bringing down the noise level as well as the environmental impact by having electrification and having an increasing need for more advanced mobility systems to deal with increasing congestion from urbanization, you have a little bit of a perfect storm that's allowing a new market to emerge with some technology advancements as well as some market advancements. So when you take a look at people that are building vehicles in this space, other than what you're up to with Hyundai, is there anybody in particular on the airframe side that you particularly respect? Yeah, there's actually quite a number of them. I mean, the, the crazy part about this industry is that it has really ballooned in terms of the number of designs out there. So um, I think the Vertical Flight Society has a list of all the EV toll designs out there, um, and it's over 215 the last time I checked. Holy um, cow. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot bigger than you'd think. And, and to be fair, some of those are very conceptual. They're just on PowerPoint. Here's what we generally believe to be the market. But a good number of them are actually some very serious competitors that have great designs out there. I, I mean, just, just to name a few, uh, you know, Joby has a really fantastic design. They just announced a very big fundraise. Lilium has some very interesting designs out there. Airbus with their Bahana project and their City Airbus project. Aurora Flight Sciences, Kitty Hawk slash Cora slash Wisp. Um, the list can really go on. There's there's a lot of really great designs and really fantastic engineering minds that are working towards this. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about is a lot of people, when they hear about the job that you're in right now, building out operations and strategy for a major automaker that's building flying cars, is how do you end up here? So earlier in your life, what did you do that allowed you to get to a place where you're building and working on building a Jetsons flying car? 
That's a great question. I mean, I was actually just uh, talking to some of my colleagues here the other day, and I asked them, you know, like if 10 years ago I asked you, where did you think you're going to be in 2020? Would any of you have thought that you're going to be at a car company uh, making flying cars? And we got a resounding no from everyone inside of the office. So <laughs> it's it's definitely a very unique journey. Um, I mean, for me, the, the day I've always been in the aerospace and defense sector. I spent many years at McKinsey and Company as a leader in their aerospace and defense practice. I, I founded their unmanned aerial systems hub and then started a management consultancy on innovation in aerospace. Um, so it feels very linear um, when I think about it from the aerospace side. Um, but honestly, I think it's a, the crux of, of all of this, even before I got into the aerospace side and was more on the defense side, um, is really a big question about how do we make innovation work for our society and how do we best take the objectives of communities and people and put them at the heart of design instead of just trying to regulate products that come out of design. Um, and I think when you go down that journey and you have that driving motivation, it inevitably leads you to the world of mobility at some point. Um, so as I think through my journey, when I look back on it, it seems a lot more linear than it felt at the time. But uh, now that I'm here, it feels very natural that the, the future of, of aviation and the future of mobility is intermodal. Um, and a car company that has scale and access to market, um, they're actually really well placed to be able to try to bring that to life and, and make sure that we are creating great products that really work for our communities. Well, it sounds interesting. One of the things that I find particularly intriguing about your background is that you founded McKinsey's Unmanned Aircraft Systems Hub, and you'd been thinking about unmanned vehicles for quite some time. Was it since childhood or sometime after college? Yeah, so I actually, um, my my delving into the unmanned side of the world happened in my graduate studies. Um, so I was doing my graduate studies and war studies at King's College London, um, and back then, that was like the beginning of, um, you know, drones and warfare. Um, so because I, I've always been drawn to the intersection of technology and policy, it was a, a very natural place for me to land my research um, was, you know, how are we developing this, these unmanned technologies? How do we think about the ethics and the requirements and how they impact our communities and how they impact warfare? Um, so that really got me into the, the unmanned world. And then when I was pulled into McKinsey and Company, um, I started to see a lot more broadly where the where the implications of those technologies could be on a societal level. And it pulled me more into the mobility and civil side of the sector. Well, thinking about the practical sides of it, I'm thinking not everybody listening right now wants to build flying cars. In fact, probably most people don't want to, although they're intrigued by it. But most people also have passions for something that they would like to do in life, either a role or in a specific area. And it looks like through your career, starting with what you were talking about in school, in university, you actually started to shape what you were doing so that when you were at McKinsey, you had McKinsey opportunities that were around aerospace and more specifically around unmanned vehicles. So you're always kind of guiding yourself in that direction. Yeah, it's actually very funny. At McKinsey, they um, they have this saying, which is, uh, you know, quote unquote, make your own McKinsey, um, where you should try to kind of forge your own path and, and make your own destiny. Um, and it's very funny because all the partners would, would joke with me that they should just roll me out at most of the uh, the recruiting events and have me tell my story because I'm kind of the hallmark of the, the make your own McKinsey story. Um, but honestly, I think a lot of it is just, at least for me, it's been never really take no as an answer when it comes to your passion. Um, so there are many times where I was trying to do UAS work and drone work, and people didn't necessarily understand the importance of it or, or see the applications um, and wouldn't be super supportive or, or see it. 
Um, but honestly, I mean, you just need to find a way to make it work and, and keep pushing because if you truly believe and are passionate about a, a certain topic and, and you can see how it's going to impact the world, um, you just got to fiercely fight for it um, and, and keep pushing until you, you find your path that allows you to get there. Did you have to push at times when you were doing things like that in your career, push pretty hard to get people to see your point of view or to support what you wanted to build? Yeah, I mean, so I was actually very lucky that I, I've always had a fantastic sponsorship network of great mentors and, and sponsors who were always willing to kind of bet on me uh, when I'd make kind of big, crazy claims and walk into their offices and be like, I'm going to build a hub that's going to focus on unmanned systems. Um, but many times, you know, they, they would, even though they would say they would support me, you could tell that they didn't necessarily see the benefit of it. And, uh, you know, for me, I always found that the most important thing is to kind of respect where they're coming from and, and try to see what they're seeing inside of the market um, or see what they're seeing inside of your idea. Because although you should push and fight fiercely for what you believe in and what you're passionate about, it's also really important to listen to what they're saying, too, because they might have a lot of really interesting insights that you may not have thought about yet that could really actually help you strengthen the way that you're approaching the market or approaching your passion. Yeah, it sounds like it's a combination of both pitching and listening and then incorporating it. And from what you just said, it sounds like you really started to think through what are the benefits for McKinsey? What are the benefits of the organization? Not just my personal interests, but something that makes it clearly important to the firm overall. Exactly. And, and a lot of that was also learning how I could actually apply these to existing clients, for example, or how I could think about how it would affect their bottom line. Um, so, for example, obviously, I'm, I'm very excited about the technology and the policy, um, but one of the greatest impacts that we were able to have with UAS consulting both at McKinsey as well as, you know, at Ascension is taking existing legacy companies and helping them understand how these new technologies could help with core business objectives. So even though it doesn't sound as sexy to be working on things like reducing risk in, uh, you know, telephone inspections, um, it's actually really important to be able to drive it forward. So understanding that feedback and taking it in and seeing it from their perspective and saying, okay, how can my passion, um, obviously it's going in one direction, but how can it also help the concerns and the ideas that these other people have inside of the industry? It will only ever make your claim stronger and it will only ever make your impact bigger. Um, so being able to have that flexibility and to listen and incorporate has been, at least for me, a really big growing experience. And I think it's been what's allowed me to actually be such a, a founder mentality person in some very large corporations. So coming back to the beginning where we started and you described the vehicle that, that Hyundai is envisioning right now, when do you think you'll personally fly in one for the first time? You personally. Me personally. So I'm hoping I can get in on some of the test flights a couple of years earlier, um, but, uh, but probably inside of a city, it's going to be sometime around 2028 to 2030. And do you think it'll be in the U.S. or do you think it'll be outside the U.S.? Um, so I think it's going to be in a, a bunch of different markets. Um, so I think the U.S. is definitely one of the places where we're going to want to push really hard. But there are lots of other countries around the world that really need this technology for their cities, too. So I think you're going to see a lot of simultaneous operations in the coming years, um, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe, in Southeast Asia, um, in Latin America and South America, as well as in the Middle East. Great. Well, Pam, thank you again for joining me today. And for listeners who'd like to keep up with you in particular and also with Hyundai's effort, where can they go? Um, so most of our stuff, if you want to see all of our big updates, they'll be announced through Hyundai Motor Group's main press center. Uh, so feel free to uh, to go there and check it out. We're on LinkedIn and we're also, uh, our website is, is updated very frequently with our UAM news. 
Um, and then if you want to get in touch with anyone on the UAM team, feel free to drop an inquiry to Hyundai Motor Group's um, press relations office, um, and they will get it over to us soon. Awesome. Pam, thanks again for joining. Thanks for having me, Rob. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.